This is Pamela Douglas, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 43, for Monday, November 28th, 2011. Well, today, I'm so privileged to bring you an interview with author, writer, and professor at the USC School of Cinematic Arts, Pamela Douglas. Pamela Douglas is also the author of the new third edition of Writing the TV Drama Series. I highly recommend it. Even if you already own the first or second edition, there are many worthy updates in it. You're going to love the interview. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, a few news items. One of them is that, of course, you may notice I'm speaking through a new microphone, and this is the Rode Procaster, thanks to sponsor Rode Microphones. So hopefully you'll uh, hear the enhancement in the tones. Um, also, the winner of this week's contest is Courtney M. She wins a copy of Bite Size Television, Create Your Own TV Series for the Internet by Ross Brown. And Ross will actually be on the podcast in January, so that leads into our homework. And that is to order Bite Size Television. You can get that at tvwriterpodcast.com. Make sure to order it right away because Ross will be on the podcast in the, r roughly the first week of January. So get your questions in by January 1st. And if your question is submitted by then and you get chosen, you might just win an insider's guide to TV's hottest market, reality TV, by Troy DeVolt. And you guessed it, Troy's going to be on the podcast soon too. So hey, you might as well order the book. Gives you something extra to read over the holidays. It was a pretty long interview with Pam, so there'll be no video tips this week. Thanks to our sponsors for making this all possible. And now my interview with Pamela Douglas. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with author, writer, and professor at the USC School of Cinematic Arts, Pamela Douglas. How are you doing, Pam? Very well, thank you. Well, I have to say I am a big fan of your book, Writing the TV Drama Series, and so it's Thanks. an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, I have to say, I think, because I, I started out with the, uh, I have, have a degree in, in screenwriting from uh, York University here. I started out mm -hmm. from the feature side, and your book was the first book about TV that I read, and it was really what made me get interested in TV writing. Actually, I think it is the first book that anybody has read because there hasn't been much out that really speaks to the professional quality of television as well as all of the wonderful opportunities, artistic and career. I truly believe that this is the time when writing for television is an open field which is just full of opportunity and and rich with creative possibilities in a way that movies are less and less. Mm -hmm. So it used to be long time ago there was the idea that, well, if you wanted to do high-quality stuff, you'd write movies and otherwise you'd work on television. And that's just flipped right now. Of course, there are some few wonderful movies, and I'm not belittling that quality, but most of the movies made are uh, franchises at this point, remakes of something old or something that aims at teenage boys and really is a lowest common denominator in the way that TV used to be. Hmm. And there are very few films made, even people who are going into the independent film festival circuit, which is art films, find that the money has dried up for those films. So it's a very, very rough road for anybody who wants to do theatrical features. But at the same time, the doors are wide open for all of the permutations of television because TV is so far, far from the days when there were just a limited number of, number of networks and a few things to choose from, all of which had to be widely broadcast. Now, with niche marketing and the rise of great stuff on basic cable such as AMC and even, even now uh, Stars is coming along, mm -hmm. not to mention the premium channels, HBO and Showtime, and all of the Internet applications at a time when television 
is converging with all of the new media. All of that put together is just a thrilling, exciting time to be a writer, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, good news that there there is still a lot of work. I know I, there was a while that uh, people were talking about the staffs getting smaller, but there's so many shows going on, and, and, and so it's good news that there's still a place to work. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. It's also true that some scripted shows have smaller staffs, some don't. There's more shows, but more than that, there's another trend that's going on now. Well, there's several other trends that are going on, but one of them is that there was a period when scripted dramatic series were being replaced by much, much cheaper so-called unscripted series, which of course is a lie. They're not unscripted. They're fully scripted. Mm -hmm. They're simply underpaid and not cold writers and poorly acted. It's just trash. So... That trash, because it was inexpensive, because of violations of labor laws and exploitation and other reasons, that trash was replacing the scripted series, but the cycle is going around so that even networks that have done overwhelming amounts of so-called reality or unscripted programming Mm -hmm. realize that there's audience exhaustion about those things and revulsion at some of the, you know, negativity on them and the uh, the kinds of qualities it brings out in human beings. And because of that, there is new interest in scripted series. At the same time, there's a big spectrum of scripted series. Some are not awfully good and some are great. Mm-hmm. But we're finding that basic cable, which is free, is completely it's a rediscovery. Mm-hmm. Right now, AMC, of course, with Breaking Bad and Mad Men before that and, and other excellent shows and the enormous success of The Walking Dead as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Stars has just come out with Boss, which is a an excellent show. And then you add to all of this stuff the international or the let's just say the global market, and we have another opening that had not existed at a time when technology was less able. Mm-hmm. But now there's a cross-breeding across all countries, and there are just no boundaries anymore. So you'll find, for example, when The Walking Dead premiered, it premiered simultaneously in 120 countries. That's crazy. Yeah, in 85 languages. Wow. Uh, yeah, in a single day. In a single day, which is because it has not nothing in that case to do with the writing of it, but that had to do with where the world is now in terms of how things are marketed and how things are broadcast. And it goes the it goes in all directions. Shows being made in other countries, being repurposed here. The Killing started in Denmark, mm-hmm. and there's so many other examples. And of course, the other way around, American-made shows being reimagined for other markets. Uh, This is especially an issue in France, where the Law & Order franchise has been, in effect, adopted and revised to fit the French legal system. But they're really using Law & Order episodes. So it's a fascinating time. Oh, and and one more, House, for some reason, I don't know exactly why, is uh, one of the most popular shows in the world in all markets, uh, all over the world. Uh, including the Middle East, by the way, where it's uh, well-known. Wow. Uh, Even though they regard doctors quite differently there. So it's just a fascinating, fascinating time to be in the television business. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to catch up to the present in a bit, but what we always do is go way back, and and I'm just fascinated by everybody's unique path into the industry. Um, Mm -hmm. why uh, Why don't you share a little bit about how you arrived at today. Um, you grew up in New York and you were not into television growing up in terms of writing it. No, no, no. I grew up in New York City. I was a poor kid and benefited, I must say, at that early time from how excellent the New York City public schools were hmm. long ago. So I got I got saved by a really, really good free education system in New York City, oddly enough. No, I uh, I didn't watch t- uh, television growing up. Uh, I was really busy trying to survive and uh, you know and to get good enough grades in school so I could win scholarships. So it, I didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 
I was a young adult and I realized a, a few things all at once. One was that being a teenager in the uh, early 70s, when there were so many social movements, it hit me all at once that the way to persuade and communicate with large numbers of people, if there's something you care about and something to say, was television. Mm. And that actually, at that time, the news programs were doing a bad job of covering any of the protests because their very staid, old-fashioned staff, especially on local stations, didn't know how to interface with the young people or with the movements, any of them. Mm. And so they were willing, and I'm going way, way back, to give out cheap cameras, cheap 8-millimeter news cameras, some of which had no sound, mm-hmm. to some of the rabble in order that we would, in exchange for being taught how to use these things, would bring them back some news footage. So that was one early way of of getting involved. But I was always a writer. I was always writing before that. I I published poetry. I did journalism. I did some plays. I was always writing. So this was a confluence that was uh, fortuitous to me, and it was part part of you know my abilities and part of the time mm-hmm. that there were some openings that are are different from what's now. Now this is all East Coast. None of this was Hollywood. Yeah. So I was already doing some early film work and experimental film work, even painting and scratching on film, developing it in my bathroom sink. I I was doing all of these exploratory things while also publishing, uh, writing in various forms, at which point I, how did this come about? There There were many, many steps involved, but one of them was that I found out that there, that far, far away in Los Angeles, where, which I knew nothing about, mm-hmm. there was a new public television station that was opening called, it no longer is called KVST TV. They put out an ad for a uh, program director. I didn't know what a program director did. I mm-hmm. had no qualifications. Yeah. But I was still very interested in the idea of shaping and forming television. And that this was a way not just to do the journalism that at that time I was already publishing, but actually to form programming blocks. So they flew me out to Los Angeles and I realized this station, you know, they were just laying in the floors. There was nothing there. There was Mm -hmm. barely any money. But I arrived in Los Angeles with a typewriter, electric typewriters. It was the era before computers. This was talking about close to the 1980s, late 70s. Mm-hmm. So no computers, I had a typewriter, I had one coat, I had a New York weight winter coat, and I had one suitcase. And I didn't know anybody here. I had no connections, mm-hmm. no contacts, nothing. I was, But I was young. And so you take a chance. So here I was. I, I got out of the airport and I saw palm trees and it wasn't freezing cold. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, I have reached heaven. I mean, this yeah. is it. I, I'm, it's going to happen. So me and all of the other thousands and thousands and thousands of people who migrate to Los Angeles with nothing but a dream landed at the airport, looked at the palm trees and decided I was going to make it here. Mm-hmm. The station went out of business within three months. I was unemployed <laughs> and broke. But by then, part, largely because of the publishing I had done and really not anything else, uh, somebody said to me, listen, Universal Studios, which was, you know, way beyond anything I could have imagined, mm-hmm. is interviewing for a woman executive. There had never, ever been a woman executive wow. in uh, the feature film area. And they said, you know, take a shot, you know, go over there. And, you know, they're talking to a lot of people. Uh, why not talk to you? Well, I had seen some of the films. I didn't like them very much. You know, I never went to these big blockbuster noisy things that were poor in story and not real and didn't connect to people. So being young and foolish and out of work, I went over there in what were my what I thought were my best clothes, which I later found out I 
had to pretty much throw away, mm-hmm. and sat down with the vice president, one of the top vice presidents, executive vice presidents for feature films, and uh, a guy named Jennings Lang, and another person who became the president after Sid Sheinberg left, Ned Tannen. And again, being young and foolish, I told them I didn't think very much of their movies, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that they really were out of touch with people, and that there were other things to be done. Wow. They hired me because it turned out that that's what they needed. To, they didn't want to hear somebody who was going to say yes to something, to mm-hmm. everything they had. They were looking to refresh wow. uh, at that point. So I, they, that was my graduate education. I went to work there having been a poor kid with literally not enough to eat. I found myself on the 14th floor of the Black Tower at Universal Studios in a fabulous office. Wow. They bought me a car, a gold Mercedes. Oh, my goodness. One year after, I literally had not enough money for food. And I soon found, however, that it was it was not for real. I mean, their entire establishment was so dense with entrenched interests and, and powerful men mm-hmm. that there was no way that a young girl from New York was going to really make enough of an impact. Mm -hmm. But I started writing screenplays while I was there. I was looking at the screenplays that were coming in, and I kept reading them and said, you know, I can do better than this. Mm -hmm. So I started writing them, you know, thank you to Universal Studios. They put me in the Writers Guild and paid my dues. Oh, good. They didn't produce those scripts, but by the time I left there, I left with two pieces of awareness. One was that I was a good writer and I had learned to write not from a school or a teacher, I had learned to write from the producers and the executives at Universal who were reading my scripts and making suggestions. And I had, by the time I quit that job, I had a body of work. Now, they weren't television, they were theatrical features, but simultaneously, I realized that a couple of floors down from my office in feature films was much more interesting than where I was with these slogging through, you know, a few films a year even then, Mm -hmm. because everything exciting was happening on the television floor. There were TV movies that were at the time were brilliant. TV movies, you know, bottom fell out of that market in the 1990s, but Mm -hmm. in the around 1980, it was still going strong, very strong. And it was a time when exciting things were happening. Stephen Bochco was was on the lot and soon would be doing Hill Street Blues. Wow. There were very, very interesting things happening. And I, I soon realized that, back to what I had realized before I got into this feature loop, that uh, TV was really the place to be. This was the source of power. It was the source of innovation. And it was where you could write something and get it on the air, whereas the features I was watching go through the mill were taking up very, very long time. Mm. from the first script to when it hit these theaters. So I got out of there and fortunately had enough contacts that I was able to get an agent and started at that point speculating early episodes. So early on, I was doing freelance scripts, which gave me a very broad sense of the marketplace because even though they weren't great material uh, of the quality I, I later did, I I learned how to do certain kinds of procedurals from a script I did from at Mike Hammer. I learned how to do some sci-fi things from a script I did at uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Mm. And I learned how to do multiple storylines from Trapper John. And so all of those early, early, early experiences, which were just freelanced episodes, gave me a very wide sense of the marketplace, which I later came to use in teaching this at USC because I know all the genres and it certainly gave me a wellspring of knowledge to pull from when I wrote the book, writing the TV drama series. So I had all of that very wide experience before I started doing, you know, some of my, my more serious writing. Mm-hmm. And a number of awards came at that time. And I love the the story in your book, how you wrote an episode specifically for a character that you felt wasn't um, wasn't being serviced, uh, played by Madge Sinclair. Yeah, yeah. And she won an Emmy from from your very first episode. <laughs> right, right. That was Trapper John. Yeah. And I was a new writer at the time, and I tried to break in. And one idea I had is that I Trapper John at that point had been on the air for quite a number of years, and most stories that people would pitch 
has already been done in some way or other. Mm-hmm. So I watched the series, and I, this is something I recommend to writers trying to get into the business. I looked for something that was not simply carrying forward the storylines that they had going on or an obvious repeat of the kinds of stories they usually tell. But I, I looked for an underserved character who was probably under contract because she was a continuing cast, but secondary cast. But I knew her work from theater, and so I knew that Madge Sinclair was a wonderful actress and really had little to do. She was hired as the, the quote, school nurse mm-hmm. or, or a nurse or something in the show and never had anything to do. So I just created something that instead of going wide with where the show goes, it went deep, went vertical into one of those characters, pitched it, and they were so amazed to hear an opportunity for somebody they were obligated to pay anyway, Mm -hmm. that they hired somebody to do that, and I I just got very lucky. It was an early piece of work, but I cared, and I wrote the character with all the depth I would have brought to a theatrical feature or to anything else serious, and was so happy that Madge, who had been ignored for so many years on that show, did win an Emmy based on what I wrote for her. Wow. Wow. And you had a number of other awards, a Humanitas Prize and uh, yeah. uh, some Emmy nominations, NAACP Image Awards. Lots and lots of things. The Humanitas Award was for an original drama and the Emmys are for all sorts of things. They went to, in many cases, the shows rather than to mm-hmm. me, though I also had some personally. One of the shows that non-prime time, was there was a series called Ghost Rider mm-hmm. that aired around 1990. Now, you developed that one, right? I did. I, I wrote the Bible, the pilot, mm-hmm. and the first 13 episodes. It was done through the Children's Television Workshop in New York City, and they needed the showrunner or the uh, head writer to live in New York, and I, I wasn't willing to go back there. So, you know, I didn't actually stay with the show after after the early development of it. But but yes, I did. And the mandate came to me because I did not write children's stuff and wasn't interested in writing children's stuff because what they wanted to do was use the same muscles that go into writing primetime dramatic series and apply them to something for a younger audience without ever writing down. The mandate under that show was to encourage kids to read. And Mm. the idea was, without being pedantic about it and without making it feel educational in any way, how could you do stories that involve reading in a completely natural way where it's something kids want to do because it gets them to a goal, a dramatic goal. So we created a character of a ghost who is able to communicate only in writing. Mm. And by communicating with the cast through writing to have important clues or important information or important insights, they need to read these in order to get what they want. And the, the reading would not necessarily be on a page of a book. It might be words written in dust or something on a window pane. There are all sorts of ways of putting language on screen without it being reading static text. Mm. And so we explored all of that. It was a very, very innovative show. And we found that although we were really aiming at 8 to 12-year-olds, you know, to encourage them to read more, we discovered that because of the strong franchise, it had kind of a detective franchise, but the strong characterizations and the relationships among the characters and the quality of what we're doing that we actually had a non-demographic from age 4 to 17. Wow. (laughs) So people were watching it without caring about the educational stuff. They were watching it because it was good storytelling. And I was very proud of that, and that won everything you can imagine. Wow. Yes, it was on for a few years. That that was one of the good experiences. I've had a lot of good experiences. People gripe about how tough it is to work for television because sometimes you get network notes, and unquestionably, you sometimes do get very stupid network notes. Mm -hmm. But if you're fortunate enough to work on a staff with an experienced showrunner and talented writers, you get a a collaborative increment of the creative energy in a show and where everybody's building on everybody else's ideas. I have a former student who's now an executive producer with Dexter, and she tells me that that's how she feels about the staff there. 
that although one person's name may be on any individual episode, that really everybody has contributed in in the writer's room and even in revision stages, and that it only makes it better because they're serving the product and not each other, and not their individual egos. That seems to be a particularly well-formed staff. Not all work as well, but I've had very good experiences. Mm-hmm. And so at, at what point um, did you start teaching at USC, and at what point did you decide that you needed to write a book? I started teaching at USC at the very beginning of my career when I had no right to be teaching at USC <laughs> or anywhere. I realized in 1982, so this was way at the beginning of everything, mm-hmm. I'd just come from Universal and that experience, and it was just, I wasn't even breaking it. I don't, I don't think I had any credits yet at that point. But I realized early on that even very successful writers have periods in between that shows get canceled and you're out of work, or you may have just not gotten staff that season, or you wrote something you thought was that was optioned and it didn't get made. There are a lot of reasons that people who work in this industry as writers have downtime. Now, sometimes you do so well that that downtime is is welcome and it's a hiatus, you know, vacation time mm-hmm. between seasons. But I realized that, you know, at that that point I had a, a newborn baby and at that point I was also a single parent and really needed to make a living. So mm-hmm. I figured, well, let me see if I could teach. And I taught a little bit at UCLA, just an adjunct class. And then, you know, they hired me to teach one class at USC, again, not on the regular faculty. So I was there for actually a lot of years. Next year, I will have been at USC for 30 years, which is a little shocking to me. Oh, my goodness. I know. But at first, I would, I would be there some terms, and when I'd join a staff, I would leave, and then I would come back. So I was off and on just teaching individual classes, but I wasn't there very long when I realized something, which is that USC at that time, and back into the 1980s, was not teaching television. They only taught the scripts that underpinned the student filmmaking and maybe one or two classes in writing a feature film. But this is way, way back before it was even the school it was now, and it, didn't mm-hmm. even, it wasn't even the USC film school. It was a department. And I was simultaneously teaching a class at UCLA, just the auxiliary program, in television. And year after year, or term after term, I would see graduates from USC coming to my class at UCLA desperate because they graduated with these fine degrees and they knew everything about production and couldn't get a job Mm. because unless they wanted to do camera or editing or one of those below-the-line crafts and feature films, the work even back then was in television more than anything else, and they had had no preparation. So I, when I saw this, I, I went back to USC and I said, listen, I'm seeing your graduate students at UCLA because they're not working. They're graduating. They're coming looking for the career path that they didn't get here. So at that point, it was 1986 at this point, I created the television curriculum at USC. Mm. And through the years, I created all of the classes in the writing division. And it just grew and grew and grew. Along the way, I became a tenured professor there and head of the TV writing track. And we now have at USC the largest, most robust television writing curriculum in the world. Wow. We offer a master's degree thesis and a, an undergraduate and a BFA, MFA and BFA thesis in television. We have a strong comedy program, writing for comedy series of all kinds. We have webisode classes and we have classes in writing pilots, which are very, very popular. So we, our students do extraordinarily well and are on all of the major shows in television. And I'm very proud that I created that curriculum and started that. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's what I teach there now, which is I teach the MFA thesis in creating your original television series, uh, writing the pilot, and also writing episodes for existing shows. I'm starting a new survey course, which is talking about 
great television series, great television episodes. We'll be screening them and talking about them. It's not open to the public. Mm-hmm. All these things are, you have to be an enrolled student at USC, but that's what got me into teaching. Fortunately, my teaching career developed in parallel to my writing career, and one supports the other. I never stopped Mm -hmm. writing just because I was teaching, and I never stopped teaching except occasionally because I was writing. I think that they feed each other. Yeah. Well, and so tell me about when you you got the idea to write your book. Oh, yeah. My own experience, I I went to film school in the early 90s, and uh, at that point, especially in Canada, there was just nothing in television, and even books, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So you probably saw the same thing. When did you say, I want to be the one? Well, it actually didn't happen quite that way. My students, year after year, kept suggesting that I write a book based on the class that I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to do it. I thought it would be a waste of my time because anything I would do this away from school had to be creative writing of uh, original material, and I didn't really want to do anything that smacked of being a text. It just didn't interest me, and it didn't seem creative enough. And anyway, I was teaching all this stuff, so why bother writing it down? But year after year, the students were saying, I wish, you know, they were printing up their own notes from the class Mm -hmm. and using that as a text and giving those to the later generations. I I realized this is kind of silly. The students are so desperate for this, they're printing my notes from the class. There were a few other things happened. I think I got to critical mass where I realized, you know, the time really has come to write down this legacy. I'm the one who created the curriculum, how to do it, how to teach it, who's kept up on all these shows. There really is nothing else out there. So I took a sabbatical, and a sabbatical was coming up, so I decided, all right. And I found that the first edition of the book was very easy because it was literally exactly what I had been teaching all those years. Mm. I wrote it very quickly. I interviewed people who were easily at hand that I already knew. Some of them were well-known, like Stephen Bochco, but I didn't have to reach very far. And uh, so I, I wrote that first book and felt good about it because it was finally had put down in writing what I knew. And so that made me feel good that it existed. What happened after that was the book was published in 2006, and within weeks of publication, it was out of date. Because in 2006, ABC started, and then the others followed suit, went from the predictable four acts to six act structure Mm -hmm. for drama series and more. And at the same time, Premium Cable, with their great shows on HBO, which had been completely new in 2005 and even 2004 when I started writing it, all that had taken off. And there were great shows that were on and interesting shows that I hadn't covered. And the Internet barely existed as a form of entertainment Mm -hmm. back in 2004, 2005. So within weeks of the time that that book was out, it was out of date. Wow. I turned around almost immediately and said to the publisher within basically one year of that book coming out, listen, I have to write a second edition. This is getting embarrassing Mm. because I'm telling them things that people are eager to have and some of it's no longer exactly accurate Mm. because the industry is so volatile and so much has happened. So I put out a second edition in 2007, wow. written in 2006, almost immediately after the first one. I, and I felt much better about the second edition because it covered, I interviewed more people. I interviewed uh, the creators of Lost, Battlestar Galactica, which is a great show, mm-hmm. and a number of other updates. It was just a better book. It was more current, more real. So that book stayed relatively current for three years until... In 2010, I realized, well, you know, there's so much that's on this wonderful basic cable has risen with Breaking Bad. There were, again, more changes. And I was also interested in the lives of my former students Mm. who I interviewed in the first edition, second edition. And, oh, maybe I skipped the second edition, but the, it had at that point been 14 years since they graduated. Some of them had tremendous careers. They were showrunners, as I mentioned, one of them was on Dexter, one of them the showrunner of a show called Smallville, the others mm-hmm. they're working on other things, and the roads that they had taken. 
So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do the first and only longitudinal study of what happens to people after film school? Mm-hmm. Because they had not all taken the same path and they had not all had the same degree of success. And they all had had life, which was interesting. So I did new interviews, fresh people. I'm so glad to have spoken to David Simon, creative The Wire. I got a wonderful interview with Charlie Collier, the president of AMC, and uh, did a third edition, which was as current as I could make it, along with the final chapter talking about the future, which goes into the global ideas and the whole idea of the relationship of webisodes to the Internet. And that just came out. That's real new. That came out in October. So that was last month. So it's a brand new book, third edition of writing the TV drama series. And I am I think this is the last one. I'm not going to keep doing it anymore. I really don't want to get stuck in, in writing analysis. In fact, when I first did the book and talked to David Milch, a great writer, mm-hmm. David said to me, yeah, don't write the book. Thanks <laughs> a lot, David. I mean, I'm, I'm here to talk to you about it. He yeah. said, don't write the book because as soon as you step away from the creative process and analyze it, you've killed your creative impulse hmm. because then you're in the analytic head instead of the creative head. I, I mentioned this to Stephen Botchko, his friend and former collaborator, and Stephen said, that's that's silly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's David talking and yeah. you know, that's not true. And it isn't true. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm an artist. I've continued writing. I do all sorts of this. So it isn't true. However, I do think that the third edition of the book, which just came out, is I do think this is my last word on the subject. Mm-hmm. But it's still the book. There are a few other people who've written some other books. There are some executives, former network executives have done a few things, but they're not writers. There are a couple of lesser books that, you know, try to do a survey that's both drama and comedy and reality and like every everything you can think of. Mm-hmm. So there are a few other works out there, but this is considered in a way the Bible of of the field and so it's very, very successful. It's been adopted by not just USC but network training programs and, you know, most other you know, serious universities that, that study this at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I got one of the first copies off of the presses, and uh, um, I I think it's a wonderful update. And I do think this one, you you did leave it kind of open-ended at the end to say we're not going to define things, and, and I think perhaps you're a little more prepared, prepared for the next few years uh, with this one. <laughs> well, that's what I think, because uh, it's a vibrant medium, and change keeps happening. Although, as I said in the book, and this was one of my favorite things, I thought that when I went out to start to interview people for this one, that I would get what I got in the second edition with, oh, everything is changing, it's all up, in the, you know, this is new, that's new, the other thing's new. And what I got was the opposite. What I got was what I say in the book, that in great times of change, what's important is what remains. And that over and over again, the same name kept coming up, no matter who I talk to, people from reality, people from networks, people from premium, everybody was saying the same thing. Aristotle. Mm. They were right back to the core principles of dramatic writing. And that's what I've been hearing from people who are interested in doing games and interested in even doing stuff on YouTube, interested in long-form drama, short-form drama. Every form is talking about the basic essentials of dramatic writing, character, story, how to build tension, how to build reversals, all of the strong dramatic principles, which actually go way back to the beginning and predate both television and theatrical features. And I think that that is a lesson for some of the young writers and also teachers out there who are saying, oh my, I have to jump on the latest technology. Oh, I have to learn how to work that device. Oh, I have to learn how to write the 3D or, you know, whatever it is that they're thinking about. And it's not true. What they really have to learn are what are the human factors that influence storytelling in all forms through the ages. And then they will never be out of date because there's always going to be another gizmo and you can't keep chasing that. Mm. But you can dig deep and find out what is real and true and honest in terms of creative expression and the stories of our times. Very, very cool. 
Well, I think it it really does the job. Now, I I hope we have some time for some submitted questions. Um, uh, when I told everybody sure. that you you were going to be interviewed, I got a whole flood of questions, and we'll do a few of them. Okay. <laughs> um, first one is, uh, and notwithstanding what you just said, uh, as TV drama has evolved over the years, what change has had the most significant impact upon aspiring writers to break in? Like like say, for instance, now versus five or ten years ago. Um, what are what are the trends that you've seen that yep. impact aspiring writers? One is that the number of venues has exploded. And for a new person, I would not necessarily look at the four major networks. I would look at off channels, including basic cables, and see what you can do to get into any of those. I would not imagine that you are going to get staffed on a show on HBO. You won't. That doesn't mean you should not write the best quality you can possibly write because you will want to have a fabulous showpiece. So you can have a showpiece of the quality of the very best. But if you're applying for work, I would say put your net wider than that. The other is that webisodes that are not just the joke, the one-minute joke, Mm -hmm. but the ones that are a little more substantial can be a new break-in method. In addition, if you have a touch with any global or regional talent or background, make use of it. Finally, I would say that new material pilots are opportunities that did not exist before. There was a time that the only way to get in would be to write spec episodes, then climb the ladder of the staff, and that's still a very good way. But currently, pilots, if they're professional enough, if they're really good, are not just samples to get yourself an agent, but can also get you staffed. So I would say learn your craft is number one. I mean, really, really learn your craft. Writing one script is never enough. You need a body of work. Hmm. And after you have that body of work, you may be able to get an agent, but with or without the agent look at these less obvious venues and do write pilots. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and that question was from Derek. Uh, you mentioned in your book having a portfolio of a feature screenplay, two specs of different franchises, and a pilot. Do you think you need ev- all of that in your bag before you you apply for a staff? No, you can have various permutations of that. That was a ballpark idea. Mm-hmm. I know some people who have been playwrights. Yeah. Excellent, successful playwrights and a play. I've seen portfolios that exist of one or two stage plays that have been successfully produced and have good reviews. I mean, some things, you know, quality work, some short stories even mm-hmm. that are quality and or a novel and then a spec episode or two and a pilot. So you don't need a feature film actually at all. Mm-hmm. But no matter what your other work is, if you're going to try to get onto a television staff, you need to demonstrate that you know the craft. Mm-hmm. They don't have time to teach you. And so although it may not be your most impressive or important piece of writing, an episode of House, for example, or Dexter or you know whatever the shows are that you want to write for, those episodes, if they're well enough written, if they're completely professionally structured are necessary because they want pros to come on staff once again because they don't have time to teach you the craft itself. Mm. So there's the talent and then there's the craft. You need both. Yeah. Uh, as for pilots, they're a great way in because they show original voice. And so I would recommend that to anybody regardless. Yeah. And Sarah asks, what are the key things that showrunners look for in the writing samples? In addition to knowing professional quality, knowing how these things work, because, again, nobody, this is not school, you're supposed to already know, Hmm. the most useful thing is the ability to write dialogue and characters, because they, although story structure is great to have, in many cases, the plots are collaborative or even the underlying through line of the series may be done by the staff or by the showrunner. But if you're a beginner, you need to be able to deliver characterization and dialogue that is completely naturalistic mm. and credible. 
And that's a, just a useful talent because they can use you right away, even in just a polished draft or in something that where you're given the story. You really need all aspects of it, but I would say because TV is an intimate medium and because you are often dealing with continuing cast that has to be recognizable to viewers, you need to be able to catch the voices, the individual quality of speech, and to be able to bring guest cast in that fits the franchise and and just is, is credible to the viewers. And so that's talent and skill together. Mm-hmm. And one last question uh, from Michael. Um, which shows on right now do you find are great examples of both classic structure but pushing the form to a new level? Breaking Bad is, is one of my favorites. I mm-hmm. love it. Yeah. I think it's just brilliantly written. Now, pushing the form, Breaking Bad pushes the form and it's got everything. There's no element it doesn't have. I'm trying to think of what would be the next most wonderful. You know, I like Boss, which is on stars and it's su- such a shock. I'm giving you two Breaking Bad <laughs> shows. Yeah. It's such a surprise that stars has something good, but it's uh, Kelsey Grammer is doing a marvelous job in a straight dramatic role. And while I don't think it pushes the form, it's just really good writing. Over on the network, The Good Wife is, uh, does a good job of combining three different kinds of franchises, you know, legal procedural, it's political procedural, and it's family drama. Mm-hmm. So it's got the three of them together, which I find very interesting. Game of Thrones is a marvelous piece of writing also, which does push the fan franchise. On the one level, it's fantasy, a make-believe, never-existed, sort of medieval-ish time mm-hmm. with dragons and monsters and stuff. But the characters are so real that it goes against the tropes of franchiseness, which, as you see them on Sci-Fi Channel, go into corny and imitative and, mm. you know, some really bad derivative likelihoods of the genre. And Game of Thrones is way beyond that, It's uh, which is HBO, and it takes fantasy to another level because the only thing that's fantasy is the world they're in. The characters are not fantasy. The characters are 100% human mm-hmm. and current. Yeah. Well, I think uh, that's all we have time for in terms of questions. Let me, re- let me make one other, two other recommendations for mm-hmm. viewing. Yeah. These are shows that are not currently on the air, but are simply great pieces of writing that anybody should know in the literature. One is The Wire. Mm-hmm. You should watch all the seasons. It's one of the greatest pieces of writing ever done. A little rough. And the other is the recent Battlestar Galactica. Get the box set. It went off the air just a couple of years ago. And Mm -hmm. you know I'm not talking about the original 1970 (laughs) series. I'm talking about the uh, the one run by Ron Moore, especially season three, which is political allegory. It has to be looked at as political allegory and not as sci-fi or fantasy, really. Mm -hmm. So I would say anybody who's interested in the literature should look at those two shows that are recently off the air. Very, very good. Yep. And uh, and so I, I don't want to skim past them, but you have some other works. Uh, you have the book, Back to Life, A Journey of Transformation Through Back Surgery, and Thank also you. your, yeah. your, your art. That's right, yes. Thank you for bringing those up, because I'd like people to know about them, even though they're not on the subject. My book, Back to Life, subtitled A Journey of Transformation Through Back Surgery, was from a journal I kept when I went through life-threatening, serious spine surgery in 2005. The book was just published. It took five years to get published. It is a very personal, insightful work that aims at inspiration for anybody who is going through serious life changes or surgery of any kind. It doesn't have to be back surgery. And so I hope that it would be helpful in leading anyone through a medical crisis or a personal crisis. I might have died. I I thought I, you know, was preparing for that eventuality. And it takes you through all of the journal entries day by day, three months before and three months after the surgery. So anybody who would find that helpful, it it is, it's published by Divine Arts Media. 
com, but you can easily find it on Amazon. And the other thing I would like to mention is that, yes, I'm a painter. Mm-hmm. It's the other part of my life. My next show is not until July. I'm represented by Tag Gallery in Los Angeles. And my art website is tamdouglasart.com. And you can see the images there. I also have a books website where all of these books are talked about. And that's pamdouglasbooks.com. If you'd like to, you know, read more about them apart from actually getting the books. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. So, so pamdouglasart.com. Pamdouglasbooks.com and pamdouglasart.com. Yeah. Wonderful. So make sure you visit those websites. There's lots of great stuff there. And um, uh, you also do seminars, but do you do personal consultations as well? I do. Rarely. But on that books website, there's a page that talks about it. I do, especially if somebody has had some writing experience and has a pilot or an episode they'd like me to read. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool. Yeah, and I will give them uh, phone consultations on, on that. But also, it's often good to consult in an early phase because I may be able to steer somebody away from um, some mistakes before they make them or or encourage a particular direction. So that's just a phone conversation, but it it may save a lot of uh, heartache later. Mm -hmm. Well, excellent, excellent stuff. And certainly everybody should run out and buy Writing the TV Drama Series 3rd Edition. I I had the 1st Edition, and uh, I think the 3rd Edition is a wonderful update. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I know we've gone a little long on the time here, but uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I appreciate talking to you. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And that's all I have for this week. Make sure you go to tvwriterpodcast.com for back episodes, resources, and a database of TV writers on Twitter with 900 writers and continues to climb. Make sure you follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones as my handle. You can also go to blip.tv slash TV Writer Podcast for all of the back episodes, and they're actually a slightly higher resolution there. You can send your questions to mail at tvwriterpodcast.com. Don't forget the contest to buy Ross Brown's bite-sized television and submit questions by January 1st. You might just win a copy of An Insider's Guide to Television's Hottest Market, Reality TV. But thanks for watching, and have a great writing week. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. <laughs>